Good morning, dear friends. Love to sing only Jesus. We, we can't live without him. We can't do anything apart from him. He is our adequacy. He is our sufficiency. He is our life. And I hope that this week, this past week, you have been able to put into practice what we looked at last week in 1 Peter 5, 7, about casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I hope you've had an opportunity to pray with a prayer partner because we need to cast our cares upon the Lord and we need to pray together. Peter has been pouring his heart out to us. We have been looking at 1 Peter for a long time, actually, and, and we're coming to the end of this letter. It's somewhat bittersweet, but we're coming to the end of this letter and Lord willing, we'll finish next week. But today, we are going to not just sit back and not take further action and say, well, we're just going to cast our cares on the Lord. No, we're going to do what comes next because there are attitudes that flow into our actions that are being, that are being given to us here. We're going to see four more attitudes today. Some of you are kind of snickering saying, four today? You're going to get through four? Yes, we're going to get through four. And it's, it's, it's things that are necessary for standing firm in Christ. Things that will inspire serious, God-dependent, focused action. So please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 and stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you're wondering why we haven't finished 1 Peter yet, it's Peter's fault. He, he just won't stop saying amazing things. He keeps saying so much. And so he's been telling us since chapter 5, verse 4, about what it takes to stand firm in Christ. We've seen three of the things already. We're going to see four today and one next week. But it is an amazing passage to close this letter. One filled with very practical, foundational truths. So 1 Peter 5, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. This is the word of God. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Please be seated. What a prayer. Verse 11. To God be the dominion forever and ever. Peter speaks plainly. He speaks clearly. He says this is the way it is. This is how it's going to be. Forever and ever. Amen. Peter tells us how to stand firm in Christ. We want to know how to stand firm in Christ. And 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil is our adversary. He's against us. 
He is never on our side. Now, I am not the biggest boxing fan in the world. In fact, you can't really call me a boxing fan. But yesterday's fight between Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Manny Pacquiao, money versus Pac-Man, was billed as the fight of the century. Yesterday was basically the sports day of the century. You had the Kentucky Derby, NBA playoffs, baseball, soccer, but the big deal was the fight. Everything built up to the fight. The fight was the big deal, and there was a lot of hype. Each boxer painted the other as his adversary. Now, when I was a kid, it was Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. Then it was Ali versus George Foreman, and so on and so forth. But one after another, each big fight was billed as adversary versus adversary. Now, fighters love to demonize their opponents. They love to say how bad the other guy is, and the lead-up to a fight is often bigger than the fight. True yesterday. There's the trash-talking. There's the smackdowns. There's the posturing. There's the glares. There's the final stare-down. And it's all designed to be adversarial. They want you to take sides. Who are you going to root for? When Peter says that the devil is our adversary, he is speaking to people who are on God's side. You're either on Satan's side or God's side. You're either an unbeliever or a believer. And Peter is writing to people who are on God's side. He is writing to God's chosen children. Now, in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we saw something about standing firm in Christ that you should be submitted to God and to others and that you should be humble before God and others. They're necessary things if you, are, if you are going to have a healthy relationship with the Lord and other people. For example, when you submit to God's authority, it makes it much easier for you to submit to godly human authority. When you humble yourself before God, you are acknowledging His greatness. You are acknowledging your weakness. And it enables you to humble yourself before others. Then we saw last week in verse 7 that we are to actively trust God, intensely practical, to cast our cares upon the Lord because He cares for us. Because all of our sin was cast on Christ, we can cast all of our cares upon Him. So I want to encourage you with one thing. Before we dive into these signs of standing firm in Christ, and there's going to look at four more, but just think of the three we've looked at. It's very easy to sell yourself short as a Christian and sell God short and say, I'm always defeated, I'm always falling, I'm always failing, I'm a miserable failure. And the problem with that line of thinking is God indwells every believer. And in Romans 8, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, if you are a Christian, you should not be condemning yourself or other people. But if you are submitted to God and you are submitted to those God has put in authority over you, if you have clothed yourself with humility toward God and others and you're accepting what God brings in your life, and if you are casting your cares upon the Lord, here is what you can know about yourself with assurance you you are standing firm in Christ if you're doing those things you are standing firm in Christ 
and you say, well, I feel weak. But you do what God says, you are strong in the Lord's strength. It is not based on your feelings. Now let's dive in to four more signs, four more markers, evidences of standing firm in Christ. The fourth thing is an attitude of watchful care. Watchful care. And we're going to look at two verbs in verse 8. Be sober and be watchful. The first is be sober. Be sober-minded. It means to be free from intoxication. And it basically means to be self-controlled. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 uses this word and says, Be alert and sober. Be under control. Peter has said, Gird your minds for action. Literally, tie down your thoughts. Get your thoughts under control so they're not all over the place. Now, when I was a children's pastor back in the 80s, at Downey First Baptist, we had all these church buses in which we loaded them up with kids and did day camps all over Southern California. But the summer would always culminate with a camping trip down to San Diego. And we would take one of these buses or two, and we would fill them all up with kids, and on the top... There were these big, big racks, these baskets that we would put all the luggage. We would have duffel bags and sleeping bags and pillows and the like. And I was taught how to load the bus. Here's what you do. You throw it all up there. Then you put a net over it. And then you tie it all down. And it's secure. And I got pretty good at that. I love climbing up on top of the bus and doing that. But as I progressed... In years, I decided, let's have some of the younger people do it. And so I had some of our interns working on that one time. And we were coming from Downey down the 5 Freeway. I think we got about to the El Toro Y, way out here. About the 405 five interchange. And all of a sudden, sleeping bags are falling off the bus. Pillows are going by the wayside. So we pull over. We have a little talk about how you're supposed to load a bus. We get back up there. We tie it down. And then we finish our trip. Peter's saying, you need to think clearly and tie down your thoughts. Unintoxicated. Taking life seriously. Don't waste your life on dumb stuff. Don't be careless. Don't make a big deal about trivial things. You make a big deal about what matters. You're in a spiritual battle. Your adversary is prowling around like a roaring lion. You need to be sober-minded. Tie your thoughts down. Have a disciplined thought life. Taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. Now, the next verb is be watchful. Be watchful. Literally, be on your guard. Be ready. Be awake. It is an imperative exclamation. Literally, be alert. Be awake. Are you all awake? Tell me that you're awake. Okay, you're awake. If someone goes to sleep, say, wake up, or elbow them, okay? Peter has called for self-control three times in this letter. He just did in verse 8, and now he is combining it with be alert. Is a military term talking about a soldier on his post, on his watch. Jesus used the same word for alertness near the end of time, as the end draws near. 
It's the spiritual warfare that we're in, and it's demanding vigilance, watchfulness, carefulness, watching for subtle deceptions, like an alligator lurking below the surface of, a, of the water. I saw a video just this last week where there was a guy who was taking a picture of an alligator, and he turns to talk to his friends, and the alligator comes lunging out of the water at him. You got to be careful. Or like a snake hidden in the grass. I'm not a big golfer. Some people think pastors golf all the time. I don't. I used to get invites. Back at my former church, there was a lot of golfers there, and they would give me mercy golf invites where they would have Mike go with us every once in a while. But then they would see how I golfed, and uh, I would... My deal about golfing was if I could get a couple good drives, a couple good putts, and bring back more golf balls than I started with, it's a good day. So this one time I'm golfing, and literally, and I remember because I never hardly golf... I look down, and there is a snake in the grass right next to me. Just jump out of the way. And you know I like to take the, hot, the hills of orange and go back into the hills and walk and hike. And uh, one day I was walking down the trail, not watching. I was on my phone, not paying attention. And I, my foot stepped one foot away from a rattlesnake. Well, it gets all coiled up. <laughs> right you know what I did I killed it I killed I'm a killer of I'm a murderer of snakes I killed it with rocks now, I've eaten a rattlesnake before but I didn't eat this one I just flung it into the bushes with a stick and I'm walking out and I'm having the heebie-jeebies I am watching at this point and what is there's like a four foot black and orange snake in the middle of the path I'm like what is going on here Snakes everywhere. Snakes on the trail. Peter is saying there are snakes on the trail. You be watchful. You be careful. Don't engage in things that cause you not to stand firm. Don't put yourself in harm's way. First John chapter 2 says don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. That's, that stings, doesn't it? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions are passing away. They're deteriorating. They're not going to last forever. But the one who does the will of God abides forever, lasts forever. But you've got to stay unentangled. I think, don't we often feel like we're tangled up with all of the worldly things and it's really hard to have a clear mind and to have disciplined thought life and to keep watchful care? See, God wants us to basically have a, a clear mind, a disciplined mind, and balance priorities in life. That way we can set our affections on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3 tells us. A heavenly perspective in life. Spiritual priorities. And Peter tells us why. Right there in verse 8. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Now the only time I've been around lions, they've been in cages, and I have not. And, you know, they'll tell you, don't look at the lion in the eye, and so I'll look at the lion in the eye because I want to see what the lion will do. Because... I'm behind the fence. It can't get to me. 
But Peter is saying, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion on the loose. He's not behind a fence. He's not in a cage. This is real life. This isn't zoo. And he says, your adversary. That's a legal term. It's your opponent in a lawsuit. Your legal adversary. It's the enemy that's against you, not for you. When he talks about the devil, he calls him the devil. He refers to a personal spiritual being who is in active rebellion against God and is in leadership over a lot of demons like himself. The devil, the Bible tells us, is a slanderer. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's our enemy. Now, if you look in the New Testament, you look at the results of demonic influence in the New Testament, there are certain characteristics that a sober-minded, watchful Christian may suspect to be at least in part influenced by the devil and demons. Things like irrational, bizarre, violent, evil, angry behavior, especially in opposition to the gospel, especially in opposition to Christians. Malicious slander, malicious gossip and false speech. An increasing bondage to destructive behavior. Stubbornly holding to false doctrine. Even sudden and unexplained bouts or outbursts of fear and hatred and anger and anxiety and depression. Things that are contrary to God's will and inappropriate to a Christian situation. We need to be cautious, watchful, careful, sober-minded. There's a lot of evil in the world. And we need to be careful and watchful because the evil that is in the world is not always directly from Satan or his demons, but sometimes it is simply from sin remaining in our hearts and sin in the lives of unbelievers. We like to blame Satan for everything. Now, indirectly, he's the first one who sinned, but we can't blame him for our disobedience to Christ. One more thing we should be cautious about is an excessive curiosity about the devil's workings. That can be harmful in your life. What the New Testament shows us is not that you should rebuke the spirit of anger or that you should rebuke the spirit of of lust, or that you should rebuke the spirit of dissension. What the Bible shows us is that you need to obey Jesus Christ. Obey Jesus Christ. There are times you are to rebuke the devil, but we don't see this over-emotional idea of, of Satan being in everything and, and, and behind every bush. We also don't see completely ignoring the fact that he's there. I think there's some errors that we perpetuate in the Christian community where we, we don't want to know. We don't want to think about it. Or sometimes we think about it too much. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, be infants in evil. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Peter is saying that Satan prowls around. That is his self-described activity. You go to Job chapter 1 and God asked Satan, what have you been doing? Where, where have you come from? He says, I've come from roaming around the earth. And Peter says, tells us what he's doing. He's roaming around like a roaring lion, 
Lions roar to scare and stun their prey so that they can devour. And that is a present tense continual roaring. He is always seeking someone to devour. He is always looking for someone to devour, which means to swallow, to drink, to, to overwhelm. It's like a lion prowling the edges of a herd of wildebeests looking for the weak link. And how does he seek to devour? How does our adversary seek to devour? We see even in 1 Peter some, some things he's, he's doing. He, he seeks to devour through the lusts of the flesh that wage war against our soul. He seeks to devour through a lack of love amongst believers. He seeks to devour through a leadership vacuum in families, relational battles among Christians. Some of you came here today and you say, well, my spouse is my enemy. They're my adversary. Some of you think your kids are your enemy. Some of you think fellow Christians are your enemy or your neighbors are your enemy. They're not your enemy. Your enemy is, is Satan and his demons. Your spouse isn't your enemy. Your kids aren't your enemy, nor are other Christians or your neighbors. Your enemy, the devil, is your adversary, and he is working through lies injected during suffering that can even lead you to discouragement and defeat and despair. God doesn't want you to stay there. Have you ever felt devoured? chewed up, spit out, beat up. The devil maliciously stalked Peter. You look in Luke chapter 22 and Jesus is foretelling Peter's denial. And, and Jesus says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And here's the good news. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you so that after you, you have turned, you will strengthen your brothers. Peter actually says, no way, Lord. I am ready to go with you to death. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. We can't let ourselves get lulled to sleep amidst ungodliness. This is what we often do as Christians, isn't it? We, we, get our, we, we let ourselves get lulled to sleep in the midst of ungodliness, and then we accept a measure of ungodliness as not harmful when it actually is very harmful. And we ignore the battle or we go into emotionalism and we let subjective feelings override objective truth. Peter is calling for watchful care, disciplined mind, self-control. That's the fourth thing we see. So we've got submission to God, humility, active trust and watchful care the fifth thing we see it in verse 9 as well here firm resistance firm resistance right after peter says in verse 8 be sober-minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour he doesn't say now flee he says you stand firm you resist him you resist him firm in your faith christians are not to fear the devil peter says we're to resist the devil stand up against him withstand take your stand second corinthians 2 paul says we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes basically we know what he's trying to do don't be ignorant 
2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us he speaks what is false and he obscures the truth. He hides the truth. 2 Corinthians 11.13 tells us he masquerades as an angel of light and his servants do too. So don't just accept anything because it looks good or looks like it's from God. Satan himself hides himself as an angel of light, pretends to be good when he is all evil. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says that he does powerful things and signs and wonders. Don't attribute every powerful thing and sign and wonder to God. Some is from Satan to, to deceive. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said that Satan would, would even lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now put your mind at ease. That phrase, if possible, means it can't happen. The elect will not be deceived and drawn away to doctrines of demons. And how will you know the elect? They're the ones that don't get deceived and get drawn away. The Bible tells us he tempts people to sin. The Bible tells us that he even plucks the word from people's hearts that don't believe and chokes any faith there might be. Jesus says in John 8, that he is a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. He always is a murderer, and he has nothing to do with the truth. He's a bloodthirsty fiend. He's a lion on the loose. Be watchful and firmly resist him. 1 Thessalonians 2 tells us that he actively fights against and hinders the progress of the gospel. That means that he is, hinder, he is trying to hinder evangelism and discipleship. Believe, people coming to faith in Christ and people growing in Christ. He is putting out an onslaught of opposition. He is our adversary. Revelation 12.10 tells us that he accuses us, he accuses Christians before God day and night. We are to resist. We resist. Struggle to fight. And God is on our side. Satan's a bully. You ever got bullied? I got bullied when I was in elementary school. My number one adversary was a guy named Ken. My number one bodyguard was my friend named Joe. Ken was bigger than me. Joe was bigger than Ken. It's awesome when it works that way, by the way. Because one time, Ken was picking on me. And Joe came in and punched him in the nose. Ken fled. (laughs) Joe rescued me. Now God says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and you are to resist him. Now that would be a very cruel instruction if we did not have God's omnipotent strength behind it. Think about it. Just go out there alone on your own and withstand the devil. That would be a cruel instruction if it were not for God's omnipotent strength in us and behind us and in front of us. God is with us, stronger than the adversary. He's defeated the enemy. Great example of Satan accusing God's people and God telling Satan what to do. Punches him in the nose, basically. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. You got Joshua, you got the Lord, and you got Satan. 
And Satan is accusing. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. That's what we're supposed to say. The Lord rebuke you. Don't rebuke a spirit of anger or a spirit of dissension or a spirit of of lust. Rebuke Satan and do what God says to do. Don't engage in anger. Don't engage in lust. Don't engage in dissension. In the power of the Holy Spirit, do what Christians are supposed to do. Some of you have received teaching that is not biblical in this category. Let me tell you, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then he says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Saying, Joshua, I plucked him from the fire. You're a believer today? You're a brand plucked from the fire. Rescued in the Lord Jesus Christ. Covered by the blood of Christ. Joshua, by the way, was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. There's all of our supposed good works outside of Christ. Nothing. Putrid. Filthy. And the angel says to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he says to him, to Joshua, behold, I've taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure garments. That's what God does. God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Christian, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Stand firm against the enemy because Christ in you is your hope of glory. How do you resist the devil? Seriously, how do you personally resist the devil? We need to know the answer to this question. What what does Peter say? Verse 9, he says, resist the devil. But he doesn't give us all the specifics. But Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6. Go there with me. Ephesians chapter 6. So Peter doesn't specifically tell us how to do it. He basically just says, you know, Nike, just do it, right? Just do it. But he also, there, is, there are things embedded in there. You do it by submitting to God. You do it by being humble and by casting your cares upon him and, and being soberly watchful, careful, and by standing firm and resisting. But he doesn't tell you exactly, exactly how to do it. Paul does. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 10, and you'll see some parallels here. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There it is. Resist. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm in Christ. Stand therefore, verse four, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You've got truth. You've got righteousness. You've got the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, verse 16, in all circumstances, having um, taken up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I said verse 4 a few minutes ago. It's because I circled something and it took the 1 out of the way there, I guess. But we're in verse 14, now verse 16, now 17. Take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, he says, Faith can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. 
Back in those days, soldiers would have shields made of heavy leather. They would soak them in water because their enemies would be shooting flaming arrows at them. And, and the, the waterlogged leather shield would, would extinguish those. And, and it's saying, your faith, your faith will extinguish the darts of the evil one. And the helmet of salvation, knowing that you're saved. And the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. And then, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. Pray. So how do we resist the devil? Practically, you use all the good resources at a Christian's disposal in Christ. Prayer, God's word, the help of fellow believers. Let me give you six key activities. I'm going to give you six key activities. They're not going to be up on the screen but they're easy to remember. The first one is renew. Renew. Allow God to renew your mind via the word of God and prayer. Those are your weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Remind yourself of gospel truth. Remind yourself that the gospel is the power of salvation for the believer. It is the power for living. You tell yourself, I don't have to cave into sin. I should be having victory over sin on a regular basis. That's what it means to grow in Christ. So renew. Secondly, reflect. Reflect. Reflect on the negative impact to others that will be affected if you do not resist. Consider your family, those in your church family, and what would your witness be if you were disgraced by public sin? Renew, reflect, and relate. Thirdly, relate. Gospel-changed relationships where you are relating to people in the body of Christ being in the body of Christ is not coming to a church and attending and leaving and not being connected to people personally. Relate. You need to have friends and mentors who will lovingly and firmly tell you the truth and hold you accountable and point you in the right direction when you get off base. So renew, reflect, relate, and then fourthly, resolve. Decide before you get in the situation what you will do in a given situation. You make deliberate, small choices that lead to more good choices. And you have a renewed holiness of life because you're putting on the armor of God. And then fifthly, rebuke. A verbal rebuke of the enemy. Jude 9 tells us when the angel, when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So in our prayer, we should rebuke the enemy, claim the shed blood of Christ, claim the victory of the cross. And sixth, sometimes you just need to run. Sometimes you just need to run away from the situation, physically if needed, Let's say you're about to do something you know you shouldn't do. Get out of there. Leave. Flee. We are told to flee. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes you just need to run. Maybe you're about to say something that you know you shouldn't say. You gotta flee in your mind. Get your mind on Jesus. Get your mind on something else. Say no to yourself. You do not deserve to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Rebuke in the name of Jesus based on his shed blood on the cross. You gotta receive God's grace. 
got to extend his grace to others. You are powerless before Satan outside of Christ. But with Jesus, you are invincible. No weapon formed against you will prevail. Don't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Tremble before God. Tremble before God with humble confidence. Engage in focused wartime tactics. James 4 says, God gives greater grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. He, excuse me, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's why Peter's saying you, you, you stand firm. You draw near to God, he's going to draw near to you. You resist the devil, you draw near to God, the devil flees. The devil flees in the presence of the righteousness of Christ. But don't wear a target on your chest. Why would you want to walk around wearing a target on your chest or wanting to be a wildebeest who's kind of on the outside of the flock? Why would you want to be like that? If you want to know God's will, if you want to defeat Satan's schemes, you obey the word of God and you pray in the Holy Spirit. You pray and dwell by the Holy Spirit. You take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and you pray at all times in the Spirit. That's what Ephesians 6 tells us. I'll even say it more clearly and strongly. If you always want to do the will of God and you always want to defeat Satan's schemes, then always know and obey the word of God and always pray. It is that simple. I'm here to tell you, it is that simple. It's not brain surgery. Okay. Two more, and we'll, we'll go quickly with these. So, help me out here. Let's just review. Number one, you need to be submitted to God and others. Number two, you need to be humble before God and others. Number three, you need to Help me out. Actively trust God. Number four, watchful care. Number five, firm resistance. And number six, solidarity. Solidarity and suffering. Look at the end of verse nine. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, I'm here to tell you too that you're not alone. You're not alone. We're not alone. Peter is emphasizing very humbly the solidarity between the numerous and widely scattered little Christian communities of that day. And he's applying it to us as well. Throughout the world, it applies to the entire Christian brotherhood scattered across the world. We need to remember that there are sufferings going on and it's common to believers everywhere. And it clearly emphasizes to us the truth that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It is the way it is. Know it. Knowing. Bear it in your mind. Keep it in your mind. You're not alone. You're not isolated. You're identified with Christ in one another. One of the first verses I memorized as a brand new believer back in 1982, almost 20 years old, was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Stand firm in Christ. I think one thing that strikes me 
rather deeply about the New Testament letters is how personal they are. You know, we have been, we have been witnessing Peter pouring out his love for Jesus and his love for the, the young churches, these elect exiles that were scattered across Asia at that time, Asia Minor. We have witnessed the intense, earnest interest that he takes in the lives of these fledging believers. He cared about their welfare. He tells them what they need to know. And we have been encouraged all the way through to take that similar kind of interest in one another's lives. If, if we get out of 1 Peter and we are not weeping more with the weeping and rejoicing more with the rejoicing and comforting more the hurting or upholding the grieving, then we have not taken to heart 1 Peter. We have just gotten more head knowledge. But if we are putting it into practice, then we are going to keep doing everything that God says believers should do. Confessing our sins, loving one another, accepting one another, and we're going to be praying individually and as households. Angela and I prayed a lot more together this week. And we pray together as believers because prayer and the word of God are our wartime weapons of righteousness. And we are in a war. This is not vacation. This is real. That's why Peter is saying this is serious business. And you know, we have opportunities each week to participate in wartime prayer. Battlefront prayer. Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m., the staff gets together for a staff meeting and we pray through a prayer list. And I, you can come anytime. We will dismiss you after a few, after we pray, though. And uh, so you can get along to your other things. And, and Friday mornings at 6.30, the elders and pastors, whoever wants to come, pray right here down front. Also, we have a very special event this Thursday. You can do that, 7 to 8 p.m. We're hosting the National Day of Prayer Gathering here at Grace with other fellow believers in the community. Bring your kids. We're gonna begin with worship. And I'm telling you, there's nothing like singing gospel praise that strengthens believers and we pray and we sing our resolve in Christ and we're standing firm in Christ Satan flees he doesn't mess with with Jesus okay last point today last point today look at verses 10 and 11 it says after you have suffered a little while which by the way might be 50, 60, 70 years with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And you might say, well, is God a masochist? Is he trying to make me suffer just to make me suffer? What's up with that? Why would God want us to suffer? And let's say you do suffer your whole life, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Wouldn't that be considered a little while in light of eternity? After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Oh, wow, he's the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Eternal glory. So you suffer for a little while here on earth. And the reason you suffer, the reason you go through such pain, is not, is not because God wants to make you feel pain. It's because he's redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb, and he is making you holy, he is making you like Christ. And that's a painful process. It's a painful process that we, we don't understand because God's sovereign good purposes are beyond our understanding sometimes. He is fulfilling his good purpose in us. 
through suffering. He's the God of all grace. He's called us to eternal glory in Christ. That's where you get the hope-filled worship. There is hope that God is going to do something. He's going to do everything he says he will do in and through you. What, what this is getting to is that he's going to glorify you. Romans 8 tells us that. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. And those whom he sanctified, he glorified. And it's spoken as if it's done, but we haven't experienced it all yet. We experience a foretaste of the glory. Christ in us, our hope of glory. But we will be glorified fully someday. That's why it says that he himself will do four actions, and they're all future active indicative, meaning he will do these in his perfect time when he glorifies us. He will restore us. That means he'll mend us. He'll reestablish us. It's used of setting a broken bone. And the Sheriff family knows about broken bones lately. He's going to confirm us. That means he's going he's to certify us as genuine believers. And he's going to strengthen us. He's going to make us strong. And he's going to establish us. He's going to put down a foundation. He's going to firmly ground us. He's going to make us immovable. By the Father's good pleasure. He enables the perseverance of the saints. That's what we're talking about here. This is going to happen. You stand firm in Christ. You don't get drawn away to doctrines of demons. And God will glorify you. And Peter is saying, if you don't take this seriously, you're playing around, you're not serious about your faith. And I do believe, not at Grace Orange, but out there somewhere, there's a big chunk of believers who are walking around in a zombie-like stupor who have been intoxicated by the world. They have been, they're like zombies who've been lulled to sleep. And they think Christianly sometimes. They're in church service and they hear a sermon. But they go out the door and poof, it's all gone. Like when, the, like the, when all the doors and windows are open and the air conditioning is on full blast. You know the thing you get mad about, parents? Peter is calling us to the serious business of standing firm in Christ. It is serious business because we have an adversary, an enemy. But most importantly, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. In closing, I want to read something that I wrote the other day, and it's, don't try to write anything down, but it's on our website, and there's more about it, but just a contrast between our adversary and our advocate. Just listen. We have an adversary. We have an advocate. Our adversary devours and destroys. Our advocate defends and delights. Our adversary steals and kills. Our advocate secures and gives life. Our adversary degrades and demands. Our advocate upgrades and understands. Our adversary accuses us and condemns. Our advocate defeated him and defends. Our adversary hates us. Our advocate loves us. Our adversary is the father of lies. Our advocate is the truth. Our adversary ruins lives. Our advocate restores lives. Our adversary flees righteousness. Our advocate is full of righteousness. Our adversary entraps and enslaves in sin. Our advocate frees and forgives from sin. Our adversary is evil. Our advocate is good. Our adversary is strong. Our advocate is stronger. Our, advo our adversary is powerful. 
Our advocate is all-powerful. Our adversary has been judged. Our advocate is the judge. Our, advo- our adversary is the prince of darkness. He's called the God of this world. Our advocate is the coming king. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And Lord God, may we rest in Jesus. May we cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Lord God, thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Christ in us, our hope of glory. Thank you, Lord. Lord God, ensure to Christians' hearts that they are safe and secure in you. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what we want to do today. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In his name, amen.